You're Inside Berkeley, the podcast with a backstage pass to Berkeley College of Music. In this episode, a conversation with music production and engineering professor Susan Rogers. She talks about working with the likes of Prince and Bare Naked Ladies, as well as the science behind why we like certain music. Leslie Mahoney reports. After a successful run as an engineer and record producer, Susan Rogers left the music industry behind to pursue life as a scientist, studying music cognition. At Berkeley, she wears both hats, teaching classes in music production and engineering and music cognition and perception. Rogers, a non-musician with a well-trained ear that's in tune with what audiences want, tells the story of her unconventional route to a career in the business. I had grown up loving records. I'd had the piano lessons like a lot of kids have. It didn't work for me. It didn't take. I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it at all, like a lot of kids. But what I did enjoy was playing the radio and playing records. I um, had a sense when I was a kid that I wanted to be a record maker. So while I was at the University of Sound Arts, this was in Hollywood, California, while I was there, I was at my job one night, and I overheard a teacher telling a student, if you always want to work, if you always want to have a job, become a maintenance tech you'll always work. Not having the money to go to school, I talked to a friend who told me, you know the United States Army has a great electronics training program. Our government, our tax dollars pay for this, so you know, why don't you avail yourself of that? So I called the local Army recruiting station, and I lied about my age. I said, hi, I'm 16 years old, I'm in high school, I'm going to graduate high school, and I'm going to join the Army, and I want to study electronics. So can you please send me your electronics manual, sir? And he said, yeah, sure, no problem. And I sent him $1.75 in postage, and he sent me, courtesy of our government, the U.S. Army's electronics manuals. And these were paperback volumes, starting with DC principles and going all the way up to microwave technology. It was a big box of electronics manuals. So I set about to read these manuals. They had big pictures of batteries and things like that, but it was basic electronics training. I started on my own. I still had my job at University of Sound Arts, but very soon after that, I discovered that there was an ad in the paper that said a company called Audio Industries Corporation was looking for a trainee. They were right in Hollywood, and what they did was they were situated uh, uh, right on Highland, right at, no, La Brea, I'm sorry. They were on La Brea right across the street from A&M Records, and they sold and serviced MCI consoles and tape machines. At that time, that was probably the most popular console and tape machine in the world because they were affordable. They were like the Ford of the industry, not the Cadillac or anything like that, but they were good, usable pieces of gear. Uh, they needed a trainee. I knew nothing, so I figured I'd be a good trainee. Uh, I interviewed and got the job. But once again, I kind of pushed my credentials a little bit more than what I actually had going on, but they saw that I had something that they were willing to pay for, and this was an important lesson that I like to impart to my students now, which is youth and enthusiasm are valuable. People will pay for enthusiasm. They'll pay good money for it. And if you have drive and ambition and you are enthused about pursuing something, an employer would rather have someone who knows nothing and has enthusiasm than someone who knows something but with no drive or passion. Along with schooling herself in maintenance technician skills, Rogers had other hurdles to negotiate. Another um, aspect of my training that was very important right around that, that time was dealing with my gender in a male-dominated industry. There were very, very few 
recording engineers who were women, I, and we all knew each other's names. Um, Leanne Unger, who is here now, Leslie Ann Jones, we knew of each other uh, because there were so few. There were even fewer women who were maintenance technicians who were, do, who were doing what I was doing, uh, and very few record producers. And uh, to fast forward to the present day, that still exists, although there are more now than there were then. Anyway, I had to come to terms with how I would conduct myself in a world that was very male-dominated. I can't necessarily, I can ne cannot necessarily say that there was a glass ceiling, um, because in the world of the arts, who knows if there is any ceiling whatsoever. There were, however, prejudices. The crucible <laughs> then was to decide whether or not we the, um, being on the receiving end of a prejudice, wanted to buy into that. And early on, I thought, okay, I will. And so I dressed in plaid, you know, shirts like my colleagues did and, and blue jeans. And then uh, after about a month or two of that, I said, no, I won't. And I swapped that stuff out for my disco gear because this was the late 1970s. And so I wore my uh, spandex and I wore my disco queen outfits and my long earrings because I figured this is the world of art. Uh, each each one of us is an artist in his or her own right. I'm just going to be myself, and if I happen to repair a tape machine, well, good for me, but I'm going to do it in my, you know, these blue suede, high-heeled, strapped <laughs> sandals because I like them. So I did not buy into the myth that women are qualitatively different or that ha we have different abilities. And that uh, ultimately worked very well for me um, because uh, if you present yourself a certain way, other people are inclined to accept that at face value. At that time, 1983, my favorite artist in the whole world was Prince. And if anyone had asked me to take a piece of paper and write out my dream job, I would have written to be Prince's, to work for Prince, to be, to, to be, to work for Prince, to be his engineer. And that happened. <laughs> uh, I was friends with Westlake Audio. They're still there. The great uh, Glenn Phoenix was approached by Prince's management out in Los Angeles to find him, to find Prince a technician. Um, I heard about it through the grapevine. Uh, I said to myself, I am getting that job. Uh, Glenn interviewed me, and then Prince's management interviewed me. They knew that Prince liked to work with women, but they also had Glenn's recommendation. At that time, this was 83, I'd been at it for five years, and by that time I was pretty good. I knew my stuff. I studied very, very hard. I knew electronics inside and out. Um, I, I was eminently qualified at that point as a young technician. Not as qualified, certainly, as you know, the more experienced folks. But for someone five years in, I was in good shape. So uh, I got the job. I was hired, and I moved sight unseen to Minneapolis. Uh, at this point, Prince was just coming off the 1999 tour. And uh, I was a huge fan. I had seen him every time he'd come into L.A. Um, I was given the... He, he was preparing for Purple Rain for the movie and for the album. He'd already had some tracks recorded. But he had a little home studio in the small basement bedroom of his house that was on Kiowa Trail in Chanhassen. And this studio just kept breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. He didn't have anyone on his staff who was qualified, who had, who had the background, to get the studio up and running. So I was given the directive to 
repair his studio, get everything running, and do it quickly because he was upstairs raring to go. He had all this music, he needed his tape machine fixed, and he needed a new console installed, and to hurry. <laughs> okay, fine. So uh, the old console came out of his studio. I installed a new one. Typically, this would be a three or four person job, but I was there in Minneapolis all by myself. That's okay. Got it all done, got the console, um, and the new console installed. I tackled his tape machine next. He had an Ampex MM. 1100 I think it was got it repaired got it pulling tape got the whole studio up and running repaired a uh, couple of pieces of outboard gear blah 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 fixed some things ready to roll so while I was down doing the last of it downstairs in his in his basement right across the hall from me was his bedroom and he had a turntable and he kept music playing all the time on that turntable he was a big fan of culture club and just some other things you got the sense that he wasn't playing it for enjoyment's sake but I got the sense that he was playing it just to, 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 he, he was a he had a voracious appetite for music but he played a lot of music over and over and over again to study it, it uh, as a scholar a student of the game meanwhile I could hear him upstairs the piano was right above the studio and I could hear him working out songs for the Purple Rain album I could also hear rehearsals for scenes in the movie that, you know, when people would come over and uh, they'd rehearse scenes and it was a very high time in his life it was a wonderful time uh, he was on top of the world he had just been on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and he was getting ready to make his first movie um, this was a great opportunity for me to be in an environment that was, for one thing, was drug-free. It was uh, young people, same age I was, and they're at starting their careers and they're starting it um, from a wonderful vantage point. So th this was very, very exciting. I was with him for five years. Initially, he expected, um, he wanted the work of a maintenance technician and that's what I did for him however I quickly discovered and so did he that he expected his maintenance tech to also be his recording engineer so my very first experiences as a recording engineer were with Prince on the Purple Rain album <laughs> um, so I I, uh, I knew the gear however I did not know the artistry I did not have the 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 voice, the individual voice as a sculptor of sound. That would take me years to acquire and I, I didn't acquire it through the regular process of being an assistant engineer and wa watching other engineers work. This was a roundabout way of doing it. But for five years I, I had a, a wonderful time with him. I was with him through Sign of the Times and the Black Album which was an unofficial release. I did Let's Go Crazy with him. He, um, in a, he didn't have enough room in his home studio to record the whole band. In fact, there was no, it was just a control room. It was a bedroom, essentially. So if he wanted to record the whole band, we had to record at rehearsal. And rehearsal was a warehouse in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And that's where um, he had his whole band set up. I, um, at his directive, we took the band set up, take, took all the mics from the stage, fed them into a splitter snake, and fed two consoles. One console was to mix his monitors, the other console was a recording console in the middle of the warehouse floor. And uh, I wired all that up for him. And um, as soon as I did that, we went, um, we would go right into recording. The band would rehearse, they worked out the arrangement for Let's Go Crazy. I had a multi-track tape machine down there, pressed record on blank tape, and we recorded that song. Uh, he would then send the band home and he'd do all the vocals and the rest of the overdubs all by himself.
Susan Rogers spent five years working for Prince as his audio maintenance technician and recording engineer. In 1988, she left Minnesota and moved back to Los Angeles and worked for 12 years as an independent recording engineer, mixer, and eventually as a producer, working with such artists as The Jacksons, David Byrne, Rusted Root, Jeff Black, and Geggy Ta. In 1998, Bare Naked Ladies' hugely successful stunt album positioned Rogers to enter a new chapter in her career. The record sold millions of copies, and um, we, were, we were very happy about that. What we tried to do on that record, what they told me they wanted, is they hoped to make a record that would, uh, for the, that, that would garner them great popularity in, um, in the U.S. Prior to that, they'd had great popularity in Canada, but the Canadian pop sound is slightly different than the U.S. pop sound. So um, I helped them in that sense, and we were successful. The record stunt was popular in the U.S. It wasn't as popular in Canada, but <laughs> we made it for a U.S. market. Um, so that, that was a highlight. That was definitely a highlight of my career. Once I had royalties from a hit record as a record producer, I was now financially in this position to leave my career. This is something I'd been pondering for a long time. I'd always known that I would enjoy the work of a scientist. I thought that I would enjoy, I'd never, I'd never finished high school. I thought that I would enjoy an academic life. I would like to be a scholar. And, um, and I, I wanted something in the natural sciences. I had no idea that there was such a thing as music perception and cognition. I, I knew nothing about that. Actually, what I was interested in was consciousness, uh, in particular in, in comparative psychology, consciousness in other species, non-human species. So um, I wrapped up my career by working with Laurie Anderson, by working with India Ari, and, and some very notable artists um, late 1999, early 2000, but by that time I was done. I, um, I quit, I quit my job. I left the music business in 2000. I earned my GED, I needed a high school diploma, so I had to sit down and take the test for that. Uh, at this time I was 44, but I thought, I don't know if this is gonna work, but it did work, I, I, I was able to hang in there. And then I entered the, as a freshman at the University of Minnesota in the year 2000. Rogers thought she was finished with the music world for good, trading it for the life of a scientist. But a professor at the University of Minnesota urged her not to discount her industry experience and knowledge and apply it to her psychology career. She took that advice, setting the stage for a seamless blending of both worlds. The thing I had missed in academia was I had I missed musicians. They were all I'd ever known in my adult life. I just the company, the dialogue, the discourse, the way of looking at the world, the way of being, the way of 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 handling information and shaping it. it the, the, there's it's a discourse community unlike any other. I did not know that until I lost it. And being um, being in grad school and being among psychologists, they're not as they don't view the world the same way. Not that it's not delightful, but I would say it's not as delightful. I missed my community. Um, being back at Berkeley, I realized, no, these, this is what I've been missing. The, these are the people I understand, and I must be one of them because um, this feels like home. Here at Berkeley, Susan Rogers imparts the why and the how of record making, sharing lessons she learned from the two decades she spent in the music business, as well as the science behind music perception and cognition. I teach two different kinds of classes, the science classes in liberal arts and then the um, art classes over here in 
MP and E, it's nice to be able to go back and forth and bring an artistic mindset or way of looking at things to the science topics and also to bring a very fact-based mindset to the art topics as well. Scientists have discovered, the field has discovered, that um, humans, upon first listen, don't necessarily bond to a song the first time they hear it. And there's this odd phenomenon we're all familiar with, that after you've heard a song number of times, the more familiar you are with it, liking can grow if liking didn't exist before. You know, if you really didn't like this song, but eventually, you know, you like it at some point, what's going to happen is that eventually you're going to go back to not liking it. <laughs> but at some point, you're going to hear that song and you're going to say to yourself, oh, I like this song. And you're going to kind of remember, now I wonder why I like it, because, you know, I didn't used to, but I kind of like this song. One thing that we know about that, uh, and that's important for record makers to understand, is when a human being is listening to a song, or when any of our sensory modalities are active, we have to keep in mind that the whole brain is processing that sensation, the whole brain. So in other words, when you're hearing a song, your vision system is completely active. It's also processing that, that sound, the, the memory of that song is being tagged with whatever you're seeing, uh, with your physiological state. Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you thirsty? Are you cold? Are you in a good mood? Are you in a bad mood? How are you feeling right now? What you're smelling, what you're touching? Are you physically comfortable? Are you not? All of that is being processed along with the sound, and this entire sensation is being tagged with memory. So as you go, as we go about our day-to-day -day activities, if a song is popular enough, the odds are good we're going to hear it in many different environments and at many different times of the day. You may hear it while you're shopping. Maybe you're at Urban Outfitters. You might hear it at the food court at the mall. You might hear it in your car because it comes on the radio. Or you might be parked at a, uh, you might be at a stoplight and you hear it in the guy's next to you, you know, his car. You uh, will hear it from somebody on the bus or just whatever. You're going to hear that song multiple times. Odds are good that at some point you're going to hear that song while you're feeling really good. Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're daydreaming, a, a good memory or something. While you're daydreaming, that's a pattern of electric, electrical activity, neuroelectrical activity, that corresponds to images and feelings. If that song just happens to be playing from the car radio of the car next to you at the red light, that song is then tagged along with, well, it's tagged as the soundtrack, to that good feeling, however briefly. At some point later on, you're going to hear that song. And it has, from you know, coming back up, it has the power then to trigger that good feeling, that memory. Or the reverse is true. Maybe you won't hear the song. Maybe at some point down the road, you'll have that good memory once again. You'll remember this special event, whatever it was. And that song will play in your head. This is the kind of thing we need to remember. We're making two objects. We're making a musical object that functions and works as music, and we're making a sonic object that's just an auditory signal. Human beings, in fact, not even all human beings, I mean, not, not just human beings, other species as well, are neurochemically changed and adjusted in the presence of music. Music has the power to regulate our physiology. It, can release neurotransmitters that cause good feelings or that get us aroused. I mean, music in bars is designed to do that, to work our arousal state up, music in clubs, to work our arousal state up. 
that's what it does. You don't have to be paying attention to it for it to do that. So record makers, musicians today can use that knowledge by um, knowing something about how music works and, and modifying their signal to work well when it's not being paid attention to. Not every listener is going to sit and actively listen to your every word or process or recognize that great chord change that you just put in there or that great harmony that you thought of from all your training. That's less important. The local details are less important than the global overall impression that a piece of music gives a listener from a distance, from another room. Think about your music that way. That's how it's going to function. One of my favorite songs uh, for this uh, is the, the romantic feeling that I get from the Isley Brothers' For the Love of You. It moves and it sways and it has a rhythm and it has a feel about it that's uh, sensual and uplifting and it launches me every time. For, for what reason, who knows, uh, you know, who, who knows. At some point, that signal, that auditory signal, became tagged in my brain with, oh, I, I need that. And I talked to my students about the difference between wanting something and needing it. When you see a band on stage or you hear a record, you might say to yourself, well, I like that record, I'm, I'm going to get that, I'm going to download that or I'm going to buy it or whatever. You're saying, I want that, I want that. Wanting something is not nearly as powerful of a feeling as saying, oh, I need that, I must have that. And that need is a much deeper, more primal feeling. That's a human being saying to him or herself, this is giving me something that I don't have, but that I want to have. I, I, th whatever feeling this is generating in me is, I, I need something. I, we use music to self-medicate, to regulate our emotions, to regulate our feelings. If a piece of music hits that sweet spot for you and generates that feeling, whether it's the feeling of chills, the feeling of power, the feeling of, of accomplishment, the feeling of uh, inspiration, of, of higher thought, whatever it is, if that's something you need to have, a piece of music can functionally perform that for you, you will have that piece of music. You will buy that and you will buy other pieces of music from that artist. This For the Love of You, reliably, comfortably, every time I want to feel that emotion of, oh, how you know romantic or sweet or whatever, that's the song I'll play and it puts me right there. Like all of us, I have songs that will reliably generate an emotion in me, a feeling in me every time. Who knows what the actual acoustical elements are that do that. That's different for every person based on our environments, based on the music that we know, our own music library. You know, each one of us has our own, but uh, that, it's great that music has that power to do that for us. Susan Rogers merges her scientific training with her engineering and production expertise at Berkeley, where she schools students in recording, engineering, and production techniques, and teaches scientific underpinnings of music with such classes as music cognition and intro to psychoacoustics. She's also conducting research about musicians' perception of sound, the results of which could help chart how musical training shapes the human hearing system. Thanks for listening to Inside Berkeley. This episode was produced by Leslie Mahoney and edited by graduating Berkeley senior Jonathan Ong. 
You can learn more about Susan Rogers and other faculty members at berkeley.edu slash faculty.